I was talking to my wife the other night. I do that every once in a while. <laughs> I said, I wonder if when we get to heaven, if the Lord will give us a Bible test. I mean, we'll have a perfect body. <laughs> I've had a perfect mind. I mean, it's, uh, we wouldn't need to have an open book test, would we? It's <laughs> uh, actually a question I asked her. You say, why do you think like that? I don't know. I don't know why I think half the things I think sometimes. And you're probably wondering from the, from the pew, I wonder why he says half the things he says. <clears throat> Take your Bibles, if you would, go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Sure glad you came out tonight. It's good to be in church. And it really does beat anything else going on out in the world. First Samuel chapter 17, when you find your place, I'd just like to read uh, the first few verses. I think we'll read right to verse 11, actually. First Samuel 17 and uh, verse 1, the Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And I actually, like, Googled that word. I'm like, how in the world? Because it sounds like I'm cussing when I say that word. And the guy actually says, you say it, Damim. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that sounds like an Eastern word there. All right, in verse, verse 2, the Bible says, And Saul and the men of Israel are gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on, one, on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful to be here, thankful to be in this church house. Thank you for it, for its usage and how you've kept the doors open all these years. Father, we thank you, Lord, for a perfect Bible. Thank you, Lord. I pray now you bless your word. I pray, pray that you bless the people that are here. And, Father, I pray that you would definitely feed them and the food would be hot and it'd be fresh. And, Father, I pray that you bless any preacher preaching the word of God tonight, the King James Bible, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, no doubt, definitely a familiar passage uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And, of course, this gives us the great account of David and Goliath. What a great story. Not only is it a story, but it's history. It actually took place. David actually took a stone and put it in a sling, and he actually slung it. Amen? And he actually whipped the giant and then jumped on top, took his sword, and whacked his head off. Amen? That's the greatest part of it right there. But not only is this a great chapter, a great spiritual inspiration about facing the giants in your life, good preaching there, and overcoming them in the power of the Lord, not to be mistaken with the Southern Baptist uh, movie, Facing the Giants. Uh, but in the first 11 verses, I'd like to kind of throw out the emergency break. You ever do that as a kid, you guys? I'm not trying to give anybody an idea. You like me going backwards in a front-wheel drive and hit the emergency brake and swing the front end around and all. You all never did that before? The old men had rear-wheel drives only, so they just gave it the gas. But I'd like to kind of throw out the emergency brake a little bit 
And I'd like to dial in just a little bit, showing you some details about the world. About the world that, to me, seem about as glaring as the 4th of July. I want to preach to you about a threatening world that we live in. A threatening world. Before we jump into this passage, and I'll not try to get too deep on the thing, I'd just like to give you 13, lucky 13, concrete scriptural facts about the world. 13 scriptural facts about the world. And I'll do it fast because this is all intro. <laughs> Amen. I want to give you, first of all, this world is evil. This world is evil according to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul calls it the present evil world. This present evil world. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2 uh, verse 8, we find that this world is not after Christ. Not after Christ. I think you know that. And this is something you have to learn as a Christian. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, this world was condemned by the patriarchs. That means uh, those who went before us. Condemned by the patriarchs. These are concrete facts. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And not only that, but number 4, uh, this world, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38, is not worthy of martyred Christians. The world is not worthy of the lives of martyred Christians for the cause of Jesus Christ. There's a book back on my desk called Fox's Books of Martyrs. And that whole book contains the lives of hundreds and thousands of martyrs for Jesus Christ that this world is not worthy of, the Bible says. And that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38. These are indisputable facts. Uh, number five, uh, according to James chapter 1 and verse 27, uh, this world will mark you up. Will mark you up. It'll spot you. That's what it says. It'll mark you up. And you know what? And a lot of times, it marks uh, Christians up physically. And Christians go out in this world and they get loose with the world. And they get uh, sideways on the Lord. And you know the first things I see? The first things I see Christians do these days when they get sideways with the Lord and they want to express their liberty, they go mark themselves up. I never understood that. Never understood that. But this world will mark you up. There's not one Christian that's serving the Lord and reading the Bible daily and trying to stay in fellowship with Jesus Christ uh, that has the innate desire to go mark their body up. That's something the world does. That's James 1.27. All right, number six, this world is the enemy of God. That's James 4.4. 4. Enemy of God. Number seven, uh, the Bible says in 2 Peter 1.4 that this world is corrupt. It's corrupt. Now, I'm just, I'm just laying the groundwork so we can kind of preach expositionally through the first 11 verses, uh, but this is a pretty solid material. Not only that, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, this world is polluted. It's polluted. Um, I mean, you ever stop and think about the junk that's going through the air right now? And you say, oh, yeah, I mean, it's terrible smoke, smog. Um, no, how about, how about the, the, the radio channels going through the air? How about the TV channels? How about all the pornographic stuff that's right in these, uh, right in the, the air and you can't see it? It's polluted. That's the world you and I live in. Stuff that's against God and uh, condemns Christianity. It's polluted through sin. That's 2 Peter 2.20. That's the Bible's opinion on it. You say, what do you think? Well, I take the Bible side. Now the world consists of three branches of devilment. You say, what is that, the legislative, the judicial? No, <laughs> there's three branches of, <laughs> close, three branches of devilment in the Bible. I think you know where I'm going here, and that's found in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John 2, 16. You say, what are the three branches of devilment? You say, is it Republican, Democrat, and Independent? Well, that might be a sub-point. But it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
that is in the world and not of after God. That's what the Bible says. Three branches of devilment in this world. Number 10, the world, according to 1 John 2.17, is passing away. The Bible says the world passeth away. You know what that means? It's not always going to be here. Isn't that a blessing? One of, the day, one of these days, this world is going to burn. You know why environmentalists are so against you burning? Uh, they don't want to rush it. <laughs> they know it's coming. It's coming. It's going to burn one day. Uh, 1 John 2, 17. And how about this one? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The world doesn't even know you. It doesn't recognize you. The world doesn't know you. You say, why? It didn't recognize Christ. You know why it doesn't recognize you? Because you're not one of them. It doesn't know you because you're a Christian. You're after Christ. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How about this one? Just in case you forgot, the world hates Christians. The world hates Christians. That's 1 John 3, 13. 1 John 3, 13. The world hates Christians. You say, why? Because it hated Jesus Christ first, the Bible says. And last but not least, fitting to stop on number 13, the world has many false prophets. Many false prophets. Now, not everybody out there is a false prophet because the Bible says uh, many are deceived and many are being deceived. But there are many false prophets according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, those are 13 solid things about the world. Now, we could have just clerically preached on those and had a time, but I don't want to do that. I want to give you that foundation that I believe you already know. But it serves as a good reminder as a Christian, this world is very threatening. It's threatening. And I want to show you this through the first 11 uh, verses here. First thing I want to show you in 1 Samuel chapter 17 about this threatening world that you and I live in, I want to show you the world's company. The world's company. Now notice again in verse 1, the Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko. Shoko. <clears throat> all right? Now first of all, I want you to see that the world here is represented by the Philistines. You say, why would you have the world represented by the Philistines? Because in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 14, they are descendants of Ham. You say, well, I like ham, you know, if it's cooked right. No, I'm talking about the son of Noah. You say, well, what about uh, the descendants of Ham? Well, you've got Ham, and then his son Mizraim, and then his grandson Casluhim, and then his great-grandson Philistim, who is the father of the Philistines. You see that? You say, I still don't see it. Well, that's Ham's great-grandson. Look at Psalm 105. I'm going to plug you in. I'm going to show you. I'm explaining a type here, which I'm probably a little bit overboard with this, but I want you to see the tie-in. Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 23. The Bible says in Psalm 105, 23, Israel also came into where? There's a type of the world, isn't it? And what's he say about that? And Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. You see it? There he is. There's Ham himself, and uh, Egypt is in the land of Ham. So the great-grandson of Ham uh, is a type of the world, just like Egypt is. You say, how so? It's against that Jew. And if against that Jew, it's against Jesus Christ, and it's against you as a child of God. So that's why I'm showing this world's company. A Ham is an inhabitant of Egypt, so the Philistines are a direct tie-in to a type of Egypt, but not just that. I want you to notice about the world's company. It's an armed company. Uh, look at verse 1. It says the Philistines gathered their armies together. You know, I see here, just kind of get off the page here a little bit. I see uh, a lot of Christians think the world can be neutral. A lot of Christians think the world actually can be positive. And what happens is because it's a refusal to take the Bible seriously like I preached on Sunday morning. And you, when you refuse to take the Bible seriously, you begin to look at everyone through rose-petal glasses, rose-colored glasses. Now listen, as a child of God, we're supposed to love one another. But God commendeth His love toward us. Amen. 
and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But don't you think for 30 seconds that this world system is in love with you? And this world's company, not only is it a type of the world, but it's an armed company. And they're out to fight. Uh, they're not out to make friends with you. You have to remember that. That's one of the dangerous things in the workplace is getting too friendly with lost people. You need to be a friend, but a real friend will keep his distance, will keep his testimony, and will put Jesus Christ first in that relationship. And if that person is not saved, you show them Jesus Christ before you show them who you are. You say, well, if you're a soul winner, then you have to win them to your... Yeah, absolutely. But you don't get too friendly with them. If you start going out to the bar with them and you go start palling around with them and you start uh, fooling around at the company picnic, you see what I mean? And all of a sudden they look at you and say, well, you're a Christian and I'm, I don't care about that stuff and I'm no different than you and, and you tip it when I tip it and you know you swear when I swear and you laugh at the jokes I tell. You say Jesus loves me. Okay, well then we're all good. Why do I need what you got? It's an armed company and the Philistines gathered their arms together. Christians assume that the world can be neutral and they never have been more wrong in their life. Not only is it an armed company, but look here in verse 1, it's an aggressive company. It's an aggressive company. You say, where do you get that? You already told us it's armed. All right, but where are they at? Where are the Philistines at? They are at a place, the Bible says, which belongeth to Judah. You see that? They're aggressive. They're taking land back from Israel that belongs to them. They're, they are, can I say this? They are out of bounds. The Philistines are out of bounds. And let me tell you what, Christian, if you're not on guard, the world will take land that belongs to Jesus Christ in your life. They will take ground that belongs to the Lord. They will take time that belongs to the Lord. The world will take money that belongs to the Lord. The Lord will take talent that belongs to the Lord. And it is very aggressive. You cannot be passive as a Christian. You have to be a militant Christian about your living and your lifestyle or else they will take it from you. You have to stay on guard. It's an aggressive company. The Philistines were out about. It's interesting that that word shoko, where they are gathering at, you know what it means? It means hedge of thorns. You say, what is that? That's the English definition of the word shoko, hedge of thorns. Look at Luke 8, chapter 14. What a great tie into this type. Luke chapter 8, verse 14. You notice many Christians these days, they'll wax hot for Christ like the moon waxes bright, but then they'll wane and get cold, and the way in their life will become a way of thorns. 8.14, the Bible says, Luke chapter 8, verse 14, And they which fell among the thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. That's a real good picture of a lot of Christians. They get choked with this world. You see that? You know where they're at? They're at the place, they're right at Shoko, and they're looking at the valley between Shoko and Ezekiah. And that word, Ephes Damim, it simply means end of boundary. A lot of Christians are dancing right at the end of the boundary. And a lot of Christians will say, well, I've got personal liberty in Jesus Christ. I can do such and such. When you start justifying your sin by liberty, you've got a problem. And your way is going to become thorny. I'm saying you, you're getting hoodwinked by the world. It's an aggressive company. Not only is it an armed company, an aggressive company, it's not alliterated, but it's an opposing company. It's an opposing company. Verse 1, it says they're gathered together to battle. The one reason the world got, uh, the Philistines got together was to fight Israel. You have to remember, according to the foundation that we laid down here, is that the world hates you. And it hates Jesus Christ in verse uh, number 12 we put up there. You've got to remember, the world is not your friend. And the world hates you and the reason it's together, the reason they're, they're an opposing company. And it doesn't know you and it doesn't recognize who you follow either. It doesn't care that you go to church. It doesn't care that you have a King James Bible. It doesn't care that you have a burden to see people saved. The world hates you, and the world does not recognize you. It's an opposing company. It is against you. Uh, there was, I want you to notice this in verse uh, number uh, 3. That I want you to notice this opposing company. There was a valley between the two armies. 
there is a valley between two armies. Isn't that interesting? You got Israel up on the mountainside on one side, and you got the Philistines up on the mountainside, and of course there's a valley in between them. And that's much like the Christian life. When you're right into the place where you're almost out of bounds, you're going to have to go through a valley every now and then to be victorious. You see, both those meet in the valley. You say, what's that valley? That's the valley of Elah. That's where David fought his first giant. And you know, as a Christian, if you're going to, avoid, if you're going to be victorious over the world, you're going to have to fight in that valley. You're going to have to go through the valleys. Can I give you five things about valleys real quick? Five things about valleys. First of all, valleys are inevitable. You're going to have to go through the valley. Jesus promised valleys would come in this world. In John 16, you know what he said? You shall have tribulation. You and I are going to have tribulation. There's no way to getting around it. You can't say, well, Lord, I'll take a rain check. Lord, yes, Lord, carry the one, and we'll get back to that and divide it by two later. You're going to have to keep it. You're going to have to go through the valleys. The valleys are tribulation. The valleys can be afflictions, and those afflictions are appointed. How about this number two? Valleys are unpredictable. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, do you? It always seems, uh, it, it's always, it, it, I'm getting a little bit wiser the older I get, and things are, the birds are singing bright, and the sun is shining so uh, uh, just wonderful, and all of a sudden, here comes a valley. I didn't expect that. I didn't want it. I didn't need it. I have time for it. It's simply unpredictable. But what does James 4.14 says? What is your life? It's a, it's a vapor. <laughs> There's a valley. <laughs> well, thank you, Lord. Appreciate that so much. Uh, uh, show me the way out as quick as possible. Number three, not only are valleys inevitable, they're unpredictable, but they're impartial. Doesn't the Lord say it rains on the just and the unjust? The Bible says in Matthew 5.45, For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the just. Valleys are impartial. It doesn't matter whether you're right with God. It doesn't matter if you're in the far country. You can go through some valleys. It's impartial. But here's a great thing about valleys number four. They're temporary. Valleys are temporary. And uh, Peter refers to a season of suffering in 1 Peter 1 verse 6. He says, though now for a season, for a season. Sin has a season. Valleys have a season. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us there's a time for everything. Ain't that the truth? That's why when the good times roll, enjoy it. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I used to think, well, I I'm not going to get too excited. Why not? Enjoy it. Amen? You got good health. You can enjoy your food. You don't have to drink every meal. You can chew your food. Enjoy it. You got a range of mobility. You've got the ability to laugh and tell a clean, decent joke. Well, have a great time. Why? Well, because the valley might be right around the corner, but just never forget they're temporal. Not only that, but when the valleys come, doesn't the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, doesn't he know how much load we can take? He sure does. And the number th uh, fifth thing about the valley I see here is valley should be a time for building faith. James tells us to count it all joy when we fall into temptations. And you know what? These valleys that we go through as Christians, they should be a time of building our faith and making us more like Jesus Christ and showing us how much we need him. And it should deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. But that's just a couple things about the valley. But it's an opposing army, the world is. And if you're going to be victorious over the world, you're going to have to learn to go through that valley and fight. Go through that valley and fight. Well, that's the world's company. Let me show you the world's champion. Uh, a very uh, wicked sodomite named Freddie Mercury uh, of the group Queen wrote the song, We Are the Champions. We are the champions of the world. Well, I'll tell you what, there's one time in the King James Bible the word champion appears, and it has to do with a nine-and-a-half-foot Hamite right here, Goliath. That's the world's champion. And uh, I don't want nothing to do with him. But I want you to notice this world's champion in verse 4. He's got a label. He's got a label. His label is his name, and his name is Goliath of Gath. And you know what that name means? Great. Great. Also means revolution. <laughs> The world's champion wants to change things. The world's champion wants to change things not only where he lives, but he wants to change things where you live. If you have uh, developed a uh, uh, discipline to walk with the Lord, the world's champions will challenge you for that. They want to be the champion in your life as well. 
He's got a label. You know what he has? Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Not only does he have a label, but uh, Goliath has a lineage. Goliath has a lineage. 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And uh, this lineage is that he's from the son, he, he's uh, from a line of giants. I know that's not hard to, to figure out. But First Chronicles chapter 20, there's something about these giants. And you find uh, some of these, uh, and I'm not as afraid to say this, some of these, uh, some of the Baptists that I run into, uh, they say they believe the Bible, and they're worried about talking about this stuff. And uh, I don't know, they must have lace in their britches or something. But he's from, he's from a line of giants. That's his lineage, First Chronicles chapter 20. And I just don't say that to be a jerk, but if the Bible is clear on something, why you got to dance around it, right? I mean, I preached the imminent return of Jesus Christ on Sunday. Why wouldn't I preach that Goliath came from a line of giants? Oh, I guess it's the fact that he married his mother and has children by his mother. That's the part that they don't want to mess around with. You see what I mean? First Chronicles chapter 20, look at verse 8. But these were born unto the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David, by the hand of his servants. All right? He's, he's come from a lineage of giants. And, of course, in a lineage, you've got a leader. You see that? Uh, this, uh, the world's champion has a leader. Look at uh, Genesis 6-4. Genesis 6-4. Just a little bit of dialing in here just to see why this world is so threatening. And this world is against you just like the Philistines are against the Jewish people. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. Now the leader is a satanic leader here. Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 4. Bible says there were, what's that word? That's giants, ain't it? How about that? There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, which the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Now we covered a little bit of this on Sunday. What happens is you had a bunch of uh, sons of God. They left their first estate. Those were the angels, right? And they left their first estate. They come down to this world. And you find out uh, through careful study, they get their blood through eating the, the, the grape the same way that Eve and Adam got their blood. And what they do is they start, they start cohabitating with the daughters of men. Why? Because they want to rule. You see, they've, been, they've lost their rulership. But in that verse, they became what? Mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. So this guy has a leader, and that leader has a satanic influence on him. His leader is Satan. Those are sons of God. Those are created beings that left their first estate and decide to shack up with the daughters of women, or the daughters of men, and they have a leader. Now notice this thing. He's got a label, a lineage, a leader, and he has a litany of armor. Back to your text there, 1 Samuel 17. Uh, I guess you could say this guy's loaded. There's your other L there. <laughs> and he's a loser. <laughs> 1 Samuel 17, he's got a litany of armor. Uh, I want you to see this. Uh, in, uh, he's got uh, in verse 4, uh, verse 5 rather, you know what he has? In verse 5, he's got a helmet. Can I draw a comparison real quick? Uh, just because oftentimes we think there's a draw to the world, don't you? Our kids do, our grandkids do, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians want to run to the world. They think, well, you know, the world's got so much more to offer. You know Jesus Christ has given you more than the world can give you. But here in verse 5, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 5, this uh, nine-and-a-half-foot Hamite here, he's got a helmet of brass. Can I tell you that brass will burn? Brass will melt? You know what the child of God has? The child of God has a helmet of salvation in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7. That helmet of salvation will never burn. He's got a helmet of brass. You know what he's got? He's got in verse 5... He's got a coat of mail. Uh, it must be junk mail, as heavy as it is, amen. He's got <laughs> and here's the thing. I uh, looked up the conversions. Coat of mail. And that thing is, your Bible says in verse 5, 5,000 shekels of brass. That's 126 pounds. Good grief. That had to be a big fella to wear a 126-pound coat of mail. 
I mean, nothing like, uh, nothing like going swimming with the Chevy on your back, amen? I mean, I understand. That had to be a big fella. And, uh, but, but not only that, a coat of mail. Well, what do I see here? I see here over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, while he's putting on weight, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, 1, the Bible says we're supposed to lay aside every weight. You see that? Uh, this fellow here thinks that the more, more weight, the better. And the Lord says, well, you need to lay aside every weight. Uh, here in verse 6, you got a target of brass. This giant's wearing a target of brass between his shoulders. You know what the child of God's been given? A breastplate of righteousness. That's Ephesians 6, 14. I'm showing you this because the Lord gives you uh, much more than the world could ever give you. The difference is he put his armor on. A lot of Christians go to battle, they never put it on. <laughs> they go out there and get stuck between the fifth rib or shot between the temples there, and they never put their armor on. But that breastplate of righteousness, that thing shows up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. And then you have, uh, well, old, old Goliath here, he's got a spear. And he says the, the, the staff of that spear is... a uh, like a weaver's beam. I didn't know you even had beams, Brother Weaver. But anyways, uh, like a weaver's beam. and I couldn't get a weight on that, but it's a pretty big thing. But the head of that thing alone is said it was 600 shekels of iron. Uh, the head of that thing was 15 pounds. Uh, can you imagine uh, just the, the, the head of something being 15-pound weight, like you've been in the weight room, 10 and 5 pound, that just being the head? If you're going to balance that thing out, it had to be at least 15 pounds the other way. That's a 30-pound spear. Uh, you ain't going to be chucking that thing too far. <laughs> Not if you're six foot. I don't care if you're German and built like a tank. You say, well, a Christian don't have a spear. No, he sure doesn't, and uh, he doesn't need a spear, but you know what he has? He's got the prayers, and that Bible says praying always, praying always. See, your prayers will go through when the spear won't get through. And that's praying always. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. I'm telling you, the Lord's given you more than, than the world will give you. A lot of people run to the world for protection. A lot of people run to the world because they think uh, the world loves them more than the church does or the child of God does. But the Lord will give you much more than he give the world. Now, let me give you this one. Not only a spear, but a sword. That's... You find out that, and you got to go to verse 51. If you go over to verse 51, my favorite part of the whole story, you see your favorite part isn't when uh, he hits, hits him in the head. No, there's, there's no gore in that, but that's pretty cool. Verse 51, David, the Bible says, took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. That's a blessing, ain't it? And uh, so Goliath's got a sword. Well, guess what? you got a sword too, and your sword's in your lap. Ain't that something? And that sword, not only uh, you can defend yourself with it, it'll uh, defeat the enemy with it. And he cuts off the sword. He, he takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. That's a picture of the Word of God. And uh, he's got a sword there. And where's that sword show up? I believe that's going to be 6-7. Uh, but the sword there, and I just want you to see that uh, he's got a litany of armor. And every, uh, just in case you think that the world has more to offer, Jesus Christ has given the child of God everything plus, everything plus. You've got the helmet of salvation, and uh, you've got plenty of other things there. Now let's move on. He's got the litany of armor. I forgot the greaves of brass. It's in verse 6. That's up here, the greaves. And, of course, you know, the likeness of that is Ephesians 6, 15. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So tit for tat, uh, the Lord will give the, the Christian much more than the, uh, the world can give you. And that's a litany of armor. 
But not only that, not only we have a litany of armor, but look at verse 42 real quick. I want you to see what you already know is that the world's champion, he looks down on others. He looks down on others. Now, Christian, you've got to watch yourself because if you're not careful, you'll be a modern-day Goliath and you'll be a Bible-believing bully. Always looking down on others. Verse 42, the Bible says, When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. What did Paul say to Timothy? Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example. Be thou an example. So he looks down on others, and finally he's got a loud, lousy mouth in verse 43. And the Bible says in verse 43 that Goliath the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He's a fellow that likes to cuss. He gets a real kick out of cussing. And that's uh, verse 43. You ever stop and think about your mouth sometimes? Well, statistics say that the average person, <laughs> the average, uh, preachers are in trouble, you know. You know, preachers talk much more than women do. And, um, but at uh, any rate, the average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. One-fifth. That's a lot of time, isn't it? And according to statistics, uh, you ever stop and think if all of our words were put into print? Uh, if you use that statistic, then the average uh, statistician says that a singles day word, singles uh, day words would fill one 50-page book. One 50-page book. So uh, if you believe statisticians, you know, liars figure and figures lie, uh, they say one 50-page book a day. Well, what if you live to 70 years? What would you produce in book format? Well, you'd produce 9,240 50-page books. <laughs> and uh, that would equivocate to 1,848,000 pages. You say, well, that's pretty stupid. Why would you uh, waste all your time? I don't know. I was thinking about the verse and about scared half to death when I read it. Bible says in Matthew 12, 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So you figure by the time you're 70 years old, the Lord's got 9,240 books that are 50 pages apiece of you. Yep, 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 yapping. I just say that because uh, old Goliath, he had a loud and lousy mouth. He had a loud, lousy mouth. Now, that's the world's champion. You see how threatening this world is? This world is not your friend. And as the hymn writer said, this world's not your home. Aren't you glad? I've had enough of this joint. Let's get out of here. Uh, as one fellow, I'm ready to blow this popsicle stand. Let me show you the final thing here, the world's challenge. Uh, you say, you got anything nice to say about the world? Not a thing. Nothing at all. You say, you're not very thankful. I didn't say I wasn't thankful. I'm just not thankful for this world. I'm thankful for the country that the Lord's allowed me to live in. I'm thankful for the family that the Lord's put me in. I'm thankful for my church family. I'm thankful for my brethren. I'm thankful for my wife who still loves me, but I'm not thankful for this world. This world's a wretched place. But here's the world's challenge. And you find this world's challenge in verses 8 through 16. I know it's a little bit of a mix tonight between teaching and preaching, but this world's challenge, you know what it does in verse 8? It challenges your very presence. It challenges your presence. You know what it says? Look at verse 8. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Are you listening to what that fellow said? Why are you come? Why had they come? Because they were out of bounds. And when you come to do what you're supposed to do, you know what the world says? What are you doing here? <laughs> you get the picture now? Why are you come? Uh, it's my house, bud. It's like a burglar walking in and going, why are you trying to shoot me? Because you're in my house. You don't belong in here. It's like someone coming up trying to hug my wife and I'm knocking their, you know, their block off. And it's like, what are you hitting me for? That's my wife. Keep your paws off. Amen. <laughs> and that's the world's challenge. It challenges your presence. The cry of the world, listen to the Christian, is this. What are you doing? 
What are you doing here? You know what the world is, is crying through these windows tonight to you that are here? Why are you here listening to someone rant and rave from a book that is older than dirt? That's the challenge. Why are you here? Why are you at church? The cry and challenge of the world is why are you, what are you doing trying to witness? What are you doing trying to live for a man that died 2,000 years ago and you've never seen? That's the challenge. What are you doing? Have you ever just stopped and thought about what you're doing? And the challenge of this world is who do you think you are? You must think you're better than we are. Well, it challenges your presence. Not only that, look at verse 10. It challenges your purpose. In verse 10... Notice what they say. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Now, I'm telling you what, this world defies you. They'll put up with you if you don't open your mouth. If you don't tell them how much you love the Lord, if you don't tell them uh, that they need to be saved and that they're sinners, they will put up with you, but they defy who you are. And uh, you need to remember this. You know what our purpose is, right? In Revelation 4.11, our purpose is to please the Lord, not this world. Our purpose is to please the Lord. Our purpose is not only to please the Lord, but our purpose is to serve the Lord. Colossians chapter 3.24, Paul says, For ye serve the Lord Christ, be ye not the servants of man. Not saying don't be a good worker or be a good... He's just saying, be not, you don't be serving other people. You serve the Lord. Our purpose is to please the Lord. It's to serve the Lord. And you can't get away from being a soldier. Our purpose is to fight a good fight, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, and to be a good soldier, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. That is our purpose. And you know what that world says? I defy the armies of the living God. That's what it does. It challenges your presence. It challenges your purpose. You know how it challenges you? It challenges you through panic. It gets you all worked up at times. And it tries to make you feel guilty for doing right. It tries to make you feel bad when you do what you should. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear. If you're doing what God wants you to do, you've got no business fearing that thing. You've got no business being afraid. You've got no business getting worked up and being panicky over a situation where you've done right. Here's the thing. When people come against you and people come at you sideways, your rights and wrongs get crossed up, don't they? And you begin to think you did something wrong when you didn't do anything wrong at all. You know what that is? That's panic. <laughs> and you've not been given the spirit of fear, Christian. I'm trying to encourage you tonight. Paul says in Hebrews 13, 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You say, well, uh, they want to fire me. Well, let them fire you. If you did what you're supposed to, the Lord will take care of it. Well, you don't understand. I could lose my benefits. You think God's hand's so short he couldn't give you another job with the same benefits or better? Well, uh, you just don't understand the, the, uh, the method or the... The mode of living that I'm used to, you don't think the Lord can provide for your mode or method of living? Let me tell you what he can. Paul said, I'll not fear what man shall do unto me. Listen, this world's a threatening world we live in. And the moment you think it's your friend, it's going to punch you right in the nose. David says in verse 32, this is great. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 32. <laughs> You know what he says? They're all panicky. They're all they're afraid. And here's a young young man. He's probably about 17 here, I reckon. And David said to Saul, "Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine." <laughs> we haven't even got into Eliab. That's later. Now you know why Eliab was so worked up. And I've seen that in in the church house. I haven't seen it in this one, but I've seen it in the church house where there's a young man and he's fired up for God and he's so fired up, okay, he's a little noisy. He's saying amen maybe more than maybe that 
kind of goes with the flow of the service, if you can say it like that. And I've heard some crotchety old person in the back go, well, you give them a few years and see where they're at then. That's wicked as hell. But old David, he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. I wish everyone would get excited. You say, well, I'm excited, preacher. I just don't shout. I didn't say you had to shout. I didn't say you had to jump out the window. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to shout, make sure it's in English. And if you're going to run, just careful on the corners. There ain't a whole lot of room. I have run into the side of those, and it leaves a nasty bruise. Amen. If you're going to walk pews, you're going you're gonna to eat it. So, But uh, it challenges you through panic. challenges you through panic. You ever been afraid? You ever been afraid and you knew the Lord wanted you to say something? Say something to a doctor? You ever been afraid and the Lord wanted you to witness to somebody and you're scared? To, you ever been afraid for doing right and now you're getting called on the carpet at the workplace for it? A man who had hid for 32 years, 32 years, fearing punishment of pro-Nazi wartime activity, says he used to cry when he heard happy voices outside. But he dared not show himself even at his mother's funeral. Genez Ruse was a young shoemaker when he went into hiding at his sister's farmhouse in June 1945. He was found many, many years later after she bought a large supply of bread in the nearby village of Zelna. He says, if I had not been discovered, I'd have remained in hiding. So I'm happy that this happened. 32 years. He told a reporter throughout those years he did nothing. He never left the house and could only look down at the village in the valley. Scared to death. That's how the world gets you to shut up at work. That's how the, the world gets you to shut up a family reunion. That's how it works. That's how the world gets you to shut up when you approach your neighbors. You see what I mean? It gets you to panic. That's what the that's what the that's what the world that's what the Philistine that's what the champion did here. He got him to fear. Well, it challenges you through panic, and you know finally it challenges you through its persistence, through its persistence. I hate to say it, but many times the world is much more persistent than the Christian is. If you look up to verse sixteen, notice this. You know that champion. It challenges Israel morning and evening for forty days. And uh, when I was learning how to be a salesman, they said it takes 17 times seeing one ad in a newspaper before a woman will change her mind and buy something. A guy, he don't read the newspaper half the time. He just buys whatever he wants and doesn't use coupons. Amen? But if it takes 17 times for a habit to begin, what do you imagine is happening at day 40? Christians are rolling over at day 40. The world is extremely persistent, and it challenges us through their persistence. This world is not going to let up, is it? I know this sounds like it gets you down. The closing is real quick, and it will encourage you, okay? But this world is persistent. It wants you to panic, and it's not going to let up. This world is going to try to get you on the mat. It's going to try to pin you down, and it's going to try to make you go, Okay, I'm done. Okay, I quit. Okay, I won't go to church anymore. I won't read my Bible. I won't pray. That's what happens when the 40 days. And 40 days all through the Bible is a time of testing. 40 days of fasting. This world is relentless and it never rests in its attempt to defeat, to debase, and finally destroy you. All right. This is the familiar passage, isn't it? We see the threatening of the world by the world's company, the world's champion, and the world's challenge. And here I'm done, just a second. Never forget, who's our company? You ever stop and think of our company? Our company is all the blood-washed brethren. Amen. All the blood-washed brethren that's all around us. Not only that, but it's all the great cloud of witnesses that are behind us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 seeing this great cloud of witness. All the people that have gone before us, or behind us rather. And then finally, our company is the multitude of counselors
for the scriptures that's in front of us. That's our company. Man, we got some good company. You guys are the best. You say, well, I don't know about Christians. They hurt me. Well, that's because you hang out with Christians. <laughs> I don't think you hang out with lost people. See, you got to be careful with your thinking. You get screwed up every once in a while, amen? You think, well, my neighbors are nicer than Christians. You don't hang out with your neighbor. You don't go to dinner with your neighbor. You don't play cards with your neighbor. You fellowship with Christians. Who's going to hurt you? Christians are going to hurt you. They're going to hurt you. But they're still the best company. You know who our champion is, right? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Our champion, he always did those things that please his father on earth. He finished the work that his father gave him to do. And he, brought, he beat death and hell at Calvary. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, the Bible says. What a savior and what a champion. We got the best champion in the world. As for our challenge of the Christian, our challenge is to worship him in the beauty of holiness, in spirit and in truth, to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ every day we live, and ours to, is to work for Jesus Christ while it's yet day, and work for the night is coming when man works no more. That's our, that's our challenge. Our challenge is to stay in fellowship with him, walk with him every day, and work to serve him. That's our challenge. Although we see the threatening of the world here in 1 Samuel 17, as a child of God, you should never forget what? Well, it's up here somewhere. The world passeth away. One day, guess what? This world is going to be gone. And one day, this world is going to rid itself of us at the rapture of the church. Won't that be a blessing? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says we shall be changed. Let me close with this. One day in a childish fit of rage, Pope Leo X, he screamed at Martin Luther. He said, Martin, the whole world is against you. To which he said, then I'm against the world. I leave you with that this morning. Although this world is threatening, I challenge you till Sunday, be against this world. All right, why don't you stand?